As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Think of a time when you were angry at someone. What went through your mind, and what, if anything, did you do about it? When I was a kid, I can recall getting so angry about something that we'd all end up fighting. But on those occasions, there was always sort of rules, because you intended to win the fight, but you never really intended to cause any lasting hurt. Now, if you've ever been in a fist fight, it's sort of the same thing. The intent there might be to harm someone, but certainly it falls short of murder, or trying to cause permanent damage. What would it take for you to cross that line and intend to permanently injure or even kill? And more specifically, what kind of thing would make you cross that line? I think for a lot of people, we would imagine scenarios where maybe there's a thief in the night or a would-be murderer or a child abductor. Certainly that's one set of scenarios. But is there anything that would make you cross that line that isn't something that's a physical threat like that? It's kind of hard to think about, isn't it? Well, this episode is going to bring up some political and even sort of religious themes as they relate to the title of communism, culture, and yes, cannibalism. Now, in the context of that title, all of those things are related. But before we dive into this exceptionally dark and often ignored piece of modern history, I want to talk about the power of belief. When you really, really believe something, It's almost impossible for someone to change your mind. Belief doesn't have to be rooted in objective or observable truths. It can be rooted on mere perception or even just an abstract idea. If that idea is deep enough, it actually shapes your perception of the world around you. Of course, when we talk about belief, it's hard not to talk about religion, because most religions work this way, one way or another. It's really hard to prove God exists to people that have made up their mind in much the same way that someone else might claim to a believer that God doesn't exist. At some point, for either person, they may as well be speaking to a wall. Belief has the power to reshape entire cultures and societies. What things do we believe are sins, and what things do we believe are virtues? Sometimes there isn't always an easy answer, but these are the forces that often shape civilizations. What has become more obvious to me as I get older is that this sort of religious power is not at all confined to things that involve deities and the supernatural. In fact, I think some of the most powerful quote-unquote religions in our society have virtually nothing to do with the supernatural. Specifically, our politics. Where I'd argue we replace the supernatural with grand idealistic views of an abstract state, 
government, or utopia. Or, as has happened in many places throughout history, a virtually, if not actually deified, dictator. But it isn't always something that we can just pin on one person, like an Adolf Hitler or a Mao Zedong. An awful lot of people have to go along for something for it to happen. And at the extreme, people can get so caught up in these political ideas that they themselves become belief systems that have the psychological power of a religion. And when that level of belief is reached, what happens when the new religion starts throwing around insults and slander at non-believers? Deplorables, backwoods folk, libtards, on and on it goes. Much of our late-night comedy now is nothing more than political outrage porn for a certain more left-wing audience, while the right has its power in things like memes or just reacting to headlines. This past year in America, in particular, we've seen this come to fruition in a way that no one alive today in this country has ever truly experienced. Entire city blocks had been set on fire, people were beaten half to death in the streets, and all told, as part of the Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots, some 30 people were killed. And of course, just a month ago, we saw the U.S. Capitol, of all places, mobbed. We've all seen and heard people shouting Nazi at very much not Nazi passersby. And of course, there's the QAnon crowd, where we've seen or maybe even know some of the people who think that there's some master inside plan to take down a global cabal. And no matter what you say about a topic to any of these people, they almost always have a way to spin it back in their favor. I think it's a dangerous game of brinksmanship based on mere beliefs about the abstract ideas of society. Think about all this as the episode progresses. What do you believe, and why? And what would you do for those beliefs if you felt that they were threatened, or the other person just wasn't reachable? Merriam-Webster's Dictionary describes the link between the words culture and cult as follows. Cult, which shares an origin with culture and cultivate, comes from the Latin cultus, a noun with meanings ranging from tilling, cultivation, to training or education, to adoration. In English, cult has evolved a number of meanings, following a fairly logical path. The earliest known uses of the word, recorded in the 17th century, broadly denoted worship. From here, cult came to refer to a specific branch of a religion, or the rites and practices of that branch, as in the cult of Dionysus. By the early 18th century, cult could refer to a non-religious admiration or devotion, such as to a person, an idea, or a fad. An example is the cult of success. Finally, by the 19th century, the word came to be used to mean a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious. So, having heard that, what cults of devotion, people, ideas, or fads do you belong to? For this episode, I'm going to take a look at the Cultural Revolution in China of the 1960s and 70s, and specifically some events documented in an oft-forgotten book called The Scarlet Memorial, which I'll link to at laurenlegends.net, which you can get to by clicking the link in the episode description. This book documents shockingly large outbreaks of murder and cannibalism along political and cultural lines that will blow you away. So what was the Culture Revolution? Long story super short, China spent the first half of the 20th century in as much or even more turmoil than the European powers who were busy waging world wars. 
Internally, China was grappling with the ideas of Marxism and how to best orient its society and government in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution of Russia and its growing importance as a nation with resources. The Chinese Communist Party, led by Mao Zedong, found itself in open conflict with the Chinese Nationalist Party, led by Chiang Kai-shek. The Nationalist Party seemed to have the upper hand and managed to drive Mao out of the urban areas. The Long March, as it's referred to, saw Mao and his forces escape this persecution and make a 6,000-mile trek all the way across China to escape, which in turn inspired many young and rural Chinese to join the cause. In the midst of this civil war, Imperial Japan would invade China, crippling a government at war with itself and further inflaming a sense of Chinese nationalism. But what did that nationalism really entail for a nation that was already fighting with itself over that very idea? The Nationalist Party of China soon found itself on the hook, crippled by inflation, war, and the resulting destruction of the economy, all of which only made it easier for the Communist Party to rally the average person to their cause. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. By 1949, Mao and the Communists had taken control of mainland China, and the Nationalists were driven to Taiwan. As the Communist Party finished consolidating its power, it undertook a project known as the Great Leap Forward, which in the late 1950s sought to rapidly industrialize China, using its massive population and manpower. People were relocated to communes, whether they wanted to go or not, and whether they succeeded or not. Ideological purity communist ideology, that is, was emphasized over everything else. The Great Leap Forward was a failure, 
Millions of people died of things like starvation and disease brought on by poor resource distribution. This caused a rift within China. Some blamed incompetent bureaucracy for the failure, and others blamed the ideas of communism itself as an ill-suited way to manage and produce capital. Now, that last sentence is important. If you're in the group stressing pure communist ideology, you're absolutely blaming the people in control for merely mismanaging the situation. You aren't about to argue that the premise of the Great Leap was flawed from the get-go, and that incentive and expertise are the engines that get an economy moving. Mao was a tyrant, and also fancied himself as more of a purist than even the Soviets, the original Marxists, who were increasingly less and less of an ally. He was watching his beloved Communist Party drift away. So he began doing what all great and often terrible movements do. They target the youth, specifically young men of fighting age, high school and college aged, who were still young enough to be influenced. The Red Guards, as they were called, were even given jackets and armbands, and their task was to root out people opposed to the pure vision of Chinese Marxism as given by Mao. The youth embraced this new feeling of revolutionary importance, and they numbered in the millions. The police and the military were ordered to not get in their way, and by the late 1960s, the Red Guard was overthrowing whole cities and towns and purging politicians and citizens who were deemed ideologically impure, by threats and by force. In some places, it got so out of hand that they had to be removed from some areas and refocused in other areas so that the more industrial areas could actually get back to work. And that is where this episode's main topic takes us, into the beautiful Chinese countryside of Guangxi, in the midst of the culture revolution of the late 1960s, as the Red Guards and their allies sought to purge the dissidents, both real and imagined, out of Chinese society and culture. Guangxi is in southern China and borders Vietnam, a not insignificant thing to note, as the Vietnam War was raging at the time. Rival factions of Red Guards were fighting for influence and control of the region, all the while the people who lived there were trapped in the middle. I'll link to a better description of this setting over at loreandlegends.net, which again you can get to by clicking the link in the episode description. And for much of what follows, you'll want to refer to the book The Scarlet Memorial by Zhang Yi, which details all of this. For this episode, I want to jump straight into the darkest, most savage, and most depressing thing of all, and the main issue addressed in Zhang Yi's Scarlet Memorial, cannibalism. Go back to that word cult, the rigid beliefs and identity it instills in a group of people. Also pile on this idea of brinksmanship, and now imagine both of those things finally spilling over the edge. What happens is that your enemy is so dehumanized and so robbed of agency that you can excuse virtually any wrong committed against them. The fighting in Guangxi was brutal, and the culture war of the cults of communism had turned hot. Landlords, wealthy peasants, people not on board with the revolution, and so-called bad elements were targeted, beaten, and killed in public. No one was safe, not even doctors at the local hospitals. And the slaughter wasn't limited to individuals. Often it would extend to whole families to just end the bloodline altogether. And what better way to absolutely dominate your inferior opponent than to eat their heart? 
Here's one such example, paraphrased from Scarlet Memorial. There was a young man named Deng Jifeng in Shisao Village. He was the son of a former landlord. Sometime in the 1950s, Deng's landlord father became a bandit, hustling resources along with his two uncles, and he was eventually defeated by the Chinese army and killed. But Deng, who was still a child, was sentenced to a mere two years in prison. Fast forward to the Culture Revolution, and Deng now resided in a nearby village outside of Shisao, and was adopted by a poor family. Shisao village was looking for people to persecute, but they couldn't seem to find many people in Shisao. But the Communist Party secretary remembered the son of a former landlord who was living in a nearby village. Men were ordered to find and arrest Deng. Aware of what was happening, Deng tried to hang himself, but he was caught. He was beaten on his way back to Shisao and refused to go any further. But rather than kill him there, they tossed him in a cage and carried him back to Shisao village, where he was hung from an electric line and beaten by a furious crowd who wanted revenge against what they perceived as the oppressive bourgeois. When Deng passed out, he was removed from the line and thrown on the ground. Several people held him down on the ground when a man named Yi Wansheng cut open his chest. Cooling off the hot blood with fresh water, he proceeded to cut out Deng's heart and liver, one small piece at a time, and hand them to a mob that was clamoring for any scrap it could get. In the book, author Zhang Yi actually catches up with Yi Wansheng, who at the time of the interview in the 1980s was 90 years old. Yi doesn't at all regret his actions, and instead frames the events as class warfare, kill or be killed. Isn't that what Chairman Mao said? Think about the mindsets involved in this murder. Viewing a young man as a threat simply because some actions of his dead father many years prior, and clamoring for scraps of meat after the brutal kill. In another story, a young man who was previously arrested and served seven years in prison for stealing a bag of rice as his family starved during Mao's failed Great Leap Forward was arrested for these crimes again during the Cultural Revolution for being an undesirable. He was held down and all the meat was cut off of his body as he was alive and carried off by random people in a crowd. On June 18, 1968, one of the more famous cases happened. A geography teacher named Wu Shufang was viewed as a capitalist sympathizer. A group of armed students, along with three of his colleagues, held him down and cut him apart. Some of his meat was cooked right there in the cafeteria and served. Some was taken by the murders. A witness to the event was none other than the school principal, who recalls at one point holding the knife that would do him in. But he couldn't bring himself to do it, so a student took the knife and reluctantly began cutting away. But the reasoning was that if they didn't act then and there in favor of the mob, they too would have been killed. The power of the mob ruled, and in another instance, in July of 1968, four people were beaten to death in the streets during a criticism rally and boiled in large pots right in the middle of the street. Some 30 people took part in the feast afterwards. Scarlet Memorial is full of events like this, investigated and recorded by Zhang Yi through a mixture of witness interviews, news articles, and official Chinese documents. It's a sobering reminder of how violent political views can make us 
when those political opinions become religious facts, and those who disagree with you become unsalvageable subhumans. But keep in mind in this region of the world, all sorts of odd things were said to have strange properties. To this day, rhino horn, shark fin, and let's not forget how easy it was for the powers that be to sell us the lie about bat soup being the origin of COVID-19 because the stigma of odd culinary beliefs and practices. One such case is alleged to have occurred in Mengshan County, where an elementary teacher was convinced that the heart of a young, beautiful girl could cure disease. So he built up a narrative, framing a 13-year-old student as a dissident. She was eventually murdered for these political reasons, and after the fact, he got his heart. So, was it something that was unique to China? Now, at this scale, it certainly seems like that might be. It was also claimed that things like dried gallbladder could still be found in some obscure markets in China, decades after the Cultural Revolution. But cannibalism is something that has happened all across the globe. There's Wendigo psychosis of North America, and a few historical accounts of that which I discuss in my Skinwalkers and Wendigos episode. And there's a notable African cannibalism of the likes of General Butt Naked, who is in the Vice documentary Cannibal Warlords of Liberia, which I'll also link to at laurenlegends.net. Zheng Yi, the author of Scarlet Memorial, finished his research on this topic in 1986 and would go on to be involved in the famous protests at Tiananmen Square in 1989 before fleeing to the U.S. Scarlet Memorial was published in 1993. His research has been discussed and debated and featured in places like the New York Times, and although the scale of cannibalism is contested by some, no one doubts that it actually happened. The nature of communist China is such that official records and investigation today is virtually impossible, and Zhang Yi documents that many, many of those involved were only lightly prosecuted or not prosecuted at all, and many more went completely unknown. Such is and was the way of Mao's Communist Party. Those who advanced his goals received a pass. This is a cautionary tale, I think, of what can happen when logic and reason are sold out for blind political belief, trading one tyrant for another and cheering as long as it's your tyrant, and viewing the other side as barely more than a warm body. For references to all the stuff in this episode, and some links to further reading you can do, or just to leave a comment, click the link to loreandlegends.net in the episode description. Well, that's all I had for this episode. Sorry it took me so long to get this one out, I had some equipment issues, and then was just generally busy outside of here. But I already have a couple more shows lined out for March, maybe even more, and I started, well, I didn't start, I'm part of another podcast now called Up the Creek that we do weekly, and it's more of a kind of an improv, news, comedy, space, aliens, conspiracy that I do with a friend of mine. Uh, Again, it's called Up the Creek, and you can find it pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, If you follow that link to laurenlegends.net in the episode description, there will be some links to Up the Creek there as well. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Parlor. I think that's the only places I am at the moment. Um, also, laurenlegends.net. Leave a comment there. I'll get back to you. Uh, shoot me an email, laurenlegendspodcast at gmail.com. And if you really, really like the show, leave me a tip. That's all for this episode. See you next time.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.